As long as storytelling has been a thing, uh, we human beings have loved a good mystery. Uh, we loved the, uh, to try to figure out who done it, what happened, how did it happen. We love a story that begins the difficult to explain situation and gradually reveals the pieces of information and evidence until at the end we're able to catch the culprit and, and explain that which once confused us. How many good books, movies, TV shows uh, repeat that same formula and we are continually drawn into that genre? Uh, I read a book this week. I read part of it. I haven't finished it, uh, which is the story with most of the books I start to read. Um, that was called God's Crime Scene, and it's written by J. Warner Wallace. Um, and I would recommend it to you, and uh, I enjoyed um, the things I have read so far. But uh, in the book, uh, he, uh, J. Warner Wallace, in his professional career, is, a, uh, is a, uh, a cold case detective. And he shows up on Nightline, or not Nightline, some of those, whatever those mister those murder police shows or whatever on TV. I don't watch them enough to know that for sure, but he shows up on TV every once in a while. as just a witness or talking through cases and things like that. And what he did is he took the, uh, the tools of his profession, uh, the tools of, of figuring out, well, how do we walk into a situation and assess things and figure out um, how did this person die? Was this a, a, a accident? Was this uh, just natural causes or did someone from the outside or some other force cause harm to this individual? And so he applies those kinds of thinking that of collecting evidence, of processing the evidence and uh, applies it to the idea of, uh, of the creation story, of the idea of God as creator. And uh, it, it's an interesting read. I, I want to read you if you'll tolerate me here reading to you. Uh, get comfortable, snuggle up with a, uh, your coffee or whatever you got here. But let me read you the the beginning of chapter two is an example of a crime scene that he uh, came upon. It begins this way, that Helen knew something was wrong when her daughter Carrie failed to answer the door. It was a bright summer afternoon. Carrie said she'd be home and her car was indeed parked in the driveway. Helen tried to peek in the living room window, but the curtains were unusually drawn. Carrie never locked the back door, but when Helen walked into the backyard of the old home, she found the door locked and all the windows closed. This wasn't like Carrie. She usually left one badly worn rear window slightly ajar. Helen began to panic. She knew Todd and Carrie had a tumultuous marriage and one that included physical violence. Todd had moved out, but Helen still feared for her daughter's safety. The couple had a child named Lexi, but the violence had only intensified since her birth. A week ago, Todd had threatened to kill Carrie, and just last night, Carrie confided there had been yet another fight. When Helen couldn't get Carrie to answer the door on this afternoon, she decided to call the police. Our officers responded and Helen and met Helen on Carrie's front porch. After getting approval from their sergeant, they forced entry into the home. Approaching the rear of the house, the officers began to smell gas. It was the strongest at the base of the stairwell leading to the second floor bedrooms. The officers decided to back out of the house and call the fire department hazmat team. Fire personnel spent nearly two hours closing the gas line, airing the house and rendering it safe for entry. Then inside the house, the officers discovered the bodies. Carrie and her infant daughter were lying in Carrie's bed in an upstairs master bedroom. Autopsies would later reveal they asphyxiated as the gas level in the home rose above the oxygen level. When the officers discovered the death scene, they called our homicide team. What did we have? Accidental death or murder? 
And the rest of the chapter goes on in detail as they begin to walk through the pieces, um, things that were unusual, things that were not normal in, in the setting, a, a gas furnace that had been installed, uh, but the gas had been shut off some years ago for a bill that hadn't been paid, but, but the gas bill had recently been paid and, and updated and, and, and was working well. And, and just things around the house as they began to collect the, the bits and pieces of evidence pointed them in the direction of something unusual, something suspicious, uh, something maybe even criminal has happened here. And it's one of those things as he begins to apply that then to the idea of God as our creator, uh, he begins to do this. He said there was a good reason to believe someone outside the house had rigged the conditions inside the house to cause the outcome. And later he goes on and says this, we were compelled to examine the evidence of tampering because of one important fact, there were dead bodies in a crime scene. In a similar way, flipping it towards the idea of God as our creator, in a similar way, when we look at the nature of our universe, the existence of living bodies ought to provoke an investigation. And he goes on, and, and I could just read the chapter to you and we could pray and be done. That would probably be better than what I'm going to go on and say here. But, uh, but he goes on and begins to, to talk to us about just that, that razor's thin edge that is required for life to exist in our universe and on our planet, of just changing the dials just a little bit one way or the other and, and dozens of different scenarios or, or things would, would cause life to cease to exist. We would not be able to live. And, and so on and on he goes, just using the, the wisdom of an investigator to, to, um, to point us in the direction of, uh, it looks as though someone from the outside has created and influenced the things on the inside. And so he makes his case for God as our creator. And it's an interesting read, and I would encourage you to, if you have time, um, uh, to pick up the book, God's Crime Scene. And, and just kind of, um, it's a little technical in places, but he does a good job of balancing all of those things out. And so we all we love, we all love those ideas of, of figuring it out. As long as humans have been alive, we've been doing that even with the planet that we live on and the universe we live in, right? You can go back to ancient cultures all the way up to today. We walk outside on a starry night and we're impressed and we look at the stars and you think, wow, the, the size of them, the magnitude of them, the, the distance of them, the, the numbers of them. And, and the more and more we know, the farther we're able to peer into the universe, the the more the, um, the grander grows. And so you can look far, you can look within ourselves, our own bodies, um, oh, the earth that we live on. We have long tried to explain all the things that we see and hear and smell and feel and taste. And our senses tempt us to look at, at all of this world and assume that surely someone, something so well put together, set with such structure, would have a grand architect, a master designer, a skillful builder. And until recent history, that is the explanation that every human culture has ever agreed upon. That they may call them different names, but there is someone out there who has influenced the things in here. But now we aren't so sure. We think we've figured out other things and other ideas, and we're tempted to explain it all away as, as simply random chance over given a long enough time period, a cosmic accident. 
And we've been encouraged to see through a different set of lenses. Now, some of you have been looking at this thinking, I can't read the letters down here. I don't know how far down you have to go. We need to figure out a chart for depth here, because if you can't read some of these lines, it may be time to see your ophthalmologist. But, uh, um, but a lens, right? If you ever go to the ophthalmologist, you know that the lenses are so important, and, and the ophthalmologist will put that big old piece of metal in your face, and you'll begin to flip lenses, and things get clearer or blurrier, and eventually, hopefully, they settle upon something that is clear. Um, and so lenses are important. Lenses in which we look at the world um, physically are very important. But the same thing is true um, spiritually. The same thing is true um, morally, ethically. All of the things, the lenses by which we look at the world uh, are very important. And, and so when you come to the Bible, the Bible gives you a set of lenses to look at your worlds. And the first set of lenses it gives you is that God is creator and that we see the world through that lens. And so in a world that has um, kind of moved on from that view, that set of lenses um, comes with consequences just as the lenses of God as creator has consequences to it. I, I, I see nature, I see people, I see myself in, in certain ways. I answer key questions about life, about how did we all get here, right? How, where'd this all come from? Or who are we? What in the world does it mean to be a human being? Or, or what are we supposed to be or do? Or how should I treat other people? All of those things are rooted into the lenses by which we see the world. And so uh, a biblical God as creator lens ought, will answer those questions differently than a lens that says there is no God. We are here by random chance. It's all accidents. Those are two very different worldviews, two sets of lenses with two very different outcomes in the world in which we live. And so the Bible comes to us and it offers in these familiar words from Genesis 1, 1 through 3, it offers us to answer to those questions of how do we get here? Who are we? What are we supposed to be and do? And it begins in this way. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And as you read the rest of Genesis 1, you find that formula just repeating itself, um, dividing the waters, creating living beings. Ultimately, you get to the end of the chapter, and God makes man and uh, makes humankind, people. And God says, this is not just good, this is very good. And so through that chapter, God answers those questions of, well, how do we get here and, and who are we and what are we supposed to be and do? And so it's no accident that the very first thing that you read about God as you open up the Bible is that God wanted you to know that he is a creator. And as you keep reading through your Bible, you just can't help but, but see it's probably on every page that God continues to remind you that he is a creator, your creator. The whole revelation of scripture is rooted in this fact from Genesis to Revelation. Let me read you some verses here. They're not on the screen, but just maybe jot them down. Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Psalm 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Ecclesiastes 12, 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Acts 17, 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in, hand, in temples built by hands. Revelation 4, 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So the doctrine, the truth, the belief system, the lenses that God is my creator um, is, is an important truth that God wants me to hold on to. And so we're not going to unpack some of the, the sciencey things. I'm not real good with that, but I would sure recommend a book like I just the one I showed you before. I do want to, though, just highlight two things that why those lenses are so important for us. That seeing God as creator does a couple of things, both um, for us and in us, right? Number one is this. I think seeing God as creator defines him. As you begin to read the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis 1, you realize that seeing God as creator begins to define him. Now, God is, is huge. God is massive. God cannot be defined. But if you begin to define characteristics and traits and things that you can know about him that continue through the rest of the story in Scripture, we begin to discover his nature and his character um, and certainly, we can list a lot of things here, but I just want you to see four things. I think if you read through even those first few verses of Genesis on down through all of Genesis 1, you find, number one, that God is sovereign and all-powerful. That God is sovereign and he is all-powerful. Um, God creates with a mere command, let there be. Let there be lights. Let there be land. Let there be seas. Let there be stars and moons and the sun. Let there be animals. Let there be fish and, and birds. Uh, let there be, uh, be people. And all throughout this, just the, the power of his spoken word creates life. There is order. There is progress. God is not just experimenting and thinking, well, that was no good. I'll throw that away. I'll start again. He, he's rather skillful in his fashioning of creation into his design. And, and, and again, I think although some people have used the more that we know to kind of push God away, I've always been of the mind that the more that we know, the more I'm amazed at God's sovereignty and his power, right? Just again, the smaller we can go, the, the more we can see inside of our own bodies and, and how all of that works or the vastness of the universe, again, just underscores that, that God is all powerful. To be able to do that, to be able to, to speak that into existence is a mighty thing. And so God is powerful, but God is also sovereign. God owns all things absolutely. And we may think of ourselves sometimes as, well, this is mine or I own this. That is the biggest lie that we can fall into. We own nothing. It's not ours. It's all his. We are simply stewards of something that we have been given for a time. Because God is sovereign and God is all powerful. It is all his. And so God is sovereign and powerful. And you read that at the beginning that this is all God's world and we're just kind of living in it. Number two, God is no mere force, but he's a person. Um, we, if you're a Star Wars person, you know that, that the force is all about that. that and, and that's a whole worldview of some people in our world. That you just see God as, as just a... a, a, a impersonal force, an energy force that kind of helps me along if I can get it on my side. But you introduced in Genesis 1 to a God who is not a mere force, but is very personal. He very much is personal 
while we may be awed by the transcendence of God, how big he is and how awesome he is, we also should be amazed at how close he is. As you read those opening verses of scripture, you find a God who, who is ever present. He creates us in his image. We reflect who he is. And so as we look at what it means to be human, we're, we see bits of God in that. We are a reflection of God. Our personhood, the value, the dignity that we have as people comes from God. In chapter 2, God provides Adam with tasks and a counterpart to help him and to be with him. The third chapter, we learn that God communed with them regularly. God is close. God is personal. Uh, God is relational. Number three, I think we also realize that God is eternal. Before all the stuff that we see was made, there was God. He is not the stuff. He was not made by the stuff. He was outside the stuff, right? The stars, the universe, the earth, everything we see and touch and experience. God is outside of that. He is eternal. The Bible frequently uses, calls him the everlasting God, right? So God is eternal. And number four, uh, I think the best one of all is that God is good. God is good. I, I love the, uh, the, as you read through that opening chapter, you find that God continues to say he makes this and says, this is good. There's a value statement in that, right? The things God was doing, he said was good. The creation did not take place in a vacuum. Uh, morality and what was good was woven into the fabric of his creation. Repeatedly, you see that it was good and it, it implies usefulness and completion, um, but also moral value to it. And so with that said, I think as you read through what, what is seeing God as creator do, it helps us to define him, right? It reminds us of his characteristics because sometimes we forget that. We get a little big for our britches or we get a little beat down by life. And it's helpful to remind ourselves of those kinds of things. When we're a little full of ourselves, it's good to remind ourselves, I am not God. He is God. And if the days when we feel a little beat down by life, it's good to know God is personal and God is good, all right? And, and that can lift the discouraged soul. And so that defines God for us a little bit. And then secondly, I want you to see this, that knowing God is creator, I think hopefully it shapes our hearts and our minds and how we think and how we see the world and how we treat the world around us. Um, I'm going to give you five things that I, we can look at others, but five things. And I'm going to read a bunch of verses from the Bible, which I hope it's okay uh, here in church. Um, I'm not going to put them on the screen too lengthy, but I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, to open them up. A lot of them are in the book of Psalms. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open up the book of Psalms and, and we're going to flee a few other places. But I just want you to read some of these and listen to how scripture invites us and encourages us to be shaped by the truth of God as our creator. So I said, I got five of them. So here's the first one. I think knowing God as creator shapes us to submit to the God of creation in fear and obedience. It calls us to submit to the God of creation in fear and obedience. I, again, I think um, I was watching an NBA basketball game yesterday with, well, I think my son was there. Maybe he'd left the room. But uh, if you watch the halftime show that TNT does, they have Shaquille O'Neal on there, who's like a seven foot two, three, whatever, huge beast of a man, and the rest of the crew. And they were talking about like um, rookie hazing. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just the things that you do, like when the new guy shows up, he has to carry all the luggage for the team or he has to go get a newspaper. Like Charles Barkley had to go get warm milk for a player in the middle of the night or something because he was just picking on him just to be fun and silly with, with the new guy. 
And they looked at Shaq and said, did you ever get hazed? He said, no, I never got hazed. I just walked in and said, I'm, I'm the franchise player. This is my team. No one hazes me. I thought, okay, there you go. Who's going to argue with this man who's seven foot three and a beastie like that? Right? And, and it just reminded me that, that man, when you compare yourself, and, and they could have argued with him, but hey, what are they going to do? You're not going to move the guy. You're not going to do anything to him, probably. He's so massive of a man. And it just reminded me of this whole idea that when we stand face to face with someone who is so much other and greater than us, one of the things that God invites us to is just a, not, a, not a beat down, um, hopeless submission, but a simple recognition that, man, I am nothing like that. He is God and I am, I'm just a man. And so I should submit to the God of creation and fear and obedience. And so let me read you some verses, a couple of them. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech and night after night, they reveal knowledge. Throughout, again, the longer I live, the more I see the stars, the more I see what God has made. I'm just reminded of how great he is and how awesome he is. Psalm 33 verses six through nine. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts in the deep into the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke <clears throat> and it came to be. <clears throat> he commanded <clears throat> and it stood firm. I'm going to get this out of here in a second. <clears throat> all right, we're good. Um, Anyway, but like I kind of stumbled through that. Verse eight says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he simply spoke with a word and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We have built some very impressive things as human beings on this globe. Um, <clears throat> but none of them came to being just by the, the spoken word, right? All of them required thousands and thousands of hours and, and, and effort and sometimes loss of life and, and great challenge. But with God, he is so much other than us, greater than us. He speaks and lo and behold, it is. The greatness of God is evident in the work of his hands, both the magnitude of the universe and the minuteness of even inside our own bodies. That we should fear and reverence him because we're not like that. He is other than us. Listen to Psalm 104. You're going to hear several passages from this chapter. Psalm 104, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the winds. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down in the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Again, that psalm continues on, as we'll see in a moment, just talking about, again, just at God's word, uh, how all these things came into being. And so one of the things that that ought to do, that if I really understand and, and embrace this thing that God is my creator, it ought to create a, a more submissive spirit to listen to him, to obey him, and to revere him. But number two, it's not just to, to submit to him, it's to trust in him. Um, well, thank you, dear. Here you go. You're now the favorite child of the family. Thank you. 
And you were before anyway, Emily. So, all right. Thank you. <clears throat> all right. Number two. Um, someone give Nathan a hug. He's no longer the favorite. Now, I think good. All right, um, number two, um, trust in the God of creation to provide your every need. So not only do I submit because his authority is great and powerful, but I trust in him to provide my every needs, right? If he holds all of this, if it's all his, um, we trust in him to provide for my every need. We sing songs sometimes about how his eye is on the sparrow or how he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Those are beautiful and true statements, right, in the scripture. Uh, because it's all his. That's very good theology. The God who was our creator, though, is also our sustainer and our provider. And so you see, God did not wind up the universe and then just let it go by itself. He is intricately involved in it and caring for us. Now, sometimes that care requires us to trust him in hard times, right? Talking before, you know, if some of you who farm for a living know that it's pretty dry outside, right? And that can make us nervous so when, when things just don't seem to be working out. But um, a lot of us have lived long enough to know that even through the droughts or through the floods or through the things, God has always sustained us. He's always taken care of us in his own way. Psalm 104 again, verses 14 and following says this. He makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home and its junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax, uh, which is like a mountain goat kind of thing. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away and they return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. Again, just the process of our world. How oftentimes does God provide for us? The New Testament would add to that the idea of the holding power of Jesus when it says this in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For in him, all things were created. In Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And so we should learn to trust in that, right? To rest in him as our provider. Number three, be humbled by the wisdom of God as evidenced in creation. Be just humbled by the wisdom of God um, that, um, I think I put, I put the wrong slide up there. Yeah, we got it. We're good. All right. I put the wrong slide here. All right. Job 38 verses one through seven. You remember the story of Job? Job has such tragic loss at the beginning of his book. Um, loses multiple children, uh, his, his livelihood, his home. So many things are taken from him, his, his health. Um, and he's miserable, he's in pain, and it spends like 30 chapters, um, him and his friends arguing about how this come to be, whose fault is this, why is this happening to me? But then in chapter 38, there's a transition in that book where God then stands before Job and he questions Job and he says this, and he goes back to creation to remind him his wisdom, right? Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? 
Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And on and on for two or three chapters there, he just continues to just make question after question. Where were you, Job, when I did all of this, right? Um, and again, we all find ourselves in places like Job. Job gets to the end of his book and he never gets the questions answered that he has about his hurts and his struggles. But what he does get is that God is wise and that Job should trust God. Um, and you and I can learn a lesson from that, right? There's a lot of things we don't understand about our life, a lot of things that are hard, um, but we should still trust in the wisdom of a God who, again, the more that we know about our own bodies, the more we know about our world, just the systems and, and the things, how things are perfectly designed, we should trust in the wisdom of our creator. Uh, um, Psalm 8, verses 3 through 5, says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind? Another version says, Who am I that you are mindful of me? Who are we? We are no one, God, and yet you are mindful of us. Human beings, that you care for them, you've made us a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So God has been good to us. So we should allow his creation, his magical work that he's done in creation to cause us to trust him in times when we don't understand things. Number four, find comfort in times of distress and difficulty, knowing that our creator is able and willing to deliver us. Him as God as creator ought to create a sense of comfort in our, in our life, especially when there is distress and difficulty. First Peter 4, 19 Peter would say this to those who are going through some fiery ordeals of their life. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to who? To their faithful creator and continue to do good. It is a good thing to put your hands in the hands of the, put your life in the hands of the creator. Saying, God, I, I don't understand all this. This is hard, but I trust in you. You as my creator, my maker. Isaiah verse 40, some of my favorite verses in the Bible says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. In other words, God's not listening to me. God's not helping me. Where are you, God? And then he says this beautiful statement. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There is a comfort to be found in putting our hand, our life in the hands of our creator when we trust him with the difficult and distressing times of our life. And last is this, we should respond to the God of creation with the praise that is due him. We should respond to the God of creation with the praise that is due him. Of all the things that God deserves from us, it ought to be thanks and praise. And yet how oftentimes, at least in my life, do I find that is not the thing that I bring to him. I bring to him my complaints, my worries, all the things that are wrong. But I think it's a wise person who learns to 
put those thanks and those praises in the places of the places where God, this isn't right, but God, there's so many right things that you have done for me. Psalm 104, again, verses 31 through 35. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. God invites us. It calls us to respond with thankfulness and praise. Psalm 148, again, echoes that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. So we like nature that sings God's praises ought to join in as the pinnacle of God's creation. We ought to be first in line to praise God and to thank God and to glorify him with our words. But I will finish with this little passage from Isaiah chapter 65 verses one and two. I think sometimes God stands as our creator to love us, to care for us, provide for us, to walk with us, to grow us. But oftentimes I read these words this morning and I just was struck by how often they are probably accurate in too many of our lives. It says this, Isaiah 65, verse 1. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. This is God speaking. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call my name, I said, here am I, here am I. He came to the people of Israel and said, here am I, I'm your God. All day long, I've held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. God as our creator is an awesome thought. It's a deep well we could talk long about. And how oftentimes do we find that God stands with open hands? I come and he invites us to, to, all the, to experience those realities, right? That comfort, that, that submissiveness, that growth, that provision, all the things that we just read about there. And yet so oftentimes we, we're just busy with our own imaginations, our, our own inclinations, what we want and what we want it to be. And we don't turn and look to the one who comes with his hands extended. And so today, as you think about and uh, process the idea that God is your creator, um, may we be humble of heart and eager to run into those open hands. Would you pray with me, please? Our God and our Father, we, uh, we give you thanks. Um, we are thankful that you uh, have revealed yourself to us in so many ways. But today we celebrate the ways that you have made yourself known to us and what you have made. The magnificence of the universe, the precision of our bodies and everything in between. And God, you have shown yourself to be wise and powerful and, um, and beyond our understanding in so many ways. So God, help us as we think about you as our creator, not to just acknowledge that mentally, but allow that truth to shape our life. May we daily be submissive and obedient to you. May we seek you for provision that we worry over and stew over and, and fret over. May we find the care and the closeness that comes as we embrace the open hands that you bring to us. And so, Father, would you allow the truth of you being our creator today um, to be a uh, heart-changing, mind-changing, and life-changing for each of us today. We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.